players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Passing Flames, Cabal Ritual, Reign of Filth, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Episode 31 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Bob the Build-Around, in which we don't talk about Dark Confidant. Instead, we ask the ever-pressing question, can we break it? The answer, hopefully, is yes, yes we can. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Brian Koval and Brian Cook. How are you all doing today? Well, after that intro, I'm a lot better, Phil. Yeah, that, that woke me right up, too. All right, excellent. Glad to... Glad to hear it. I'm ready to talk some magic. I actually had, like, a good magic week for a change, so I'm not coming into this episode terribly depressed and, like, hating Oko. We might get there by the end of the episode, who knows, but I'm feeling pretty good as of right now. I think we are barely going to talk about Oko in this episode, honestly. Like, we're queued up to barely touch that guy. Well, Brian just doesn't want to talk about how he was wrong in the last episode, but we'll get there. Whoa continue (laughs) all right brian start us off with the quick hits we had a donation from henrik Korkutz. uh thank you henrik we do appreciate that and uh, i know you two have some stuff that you want to talk about regarding school life so i'll let you two uh tackle that now oh yeah brian i'll I'll let you start this mess (laughs) i mean i i have very few updates from two weeks ago it is very much the same. Uh, my students are largely incapable or unwilling to wear masks. Uh, it is special education. Uh, they, We have a hard time keeping clothes on some of them, so uh, teaching them to wear a mask is a new adventure all around. So uh, we've had two classrooms shut down due to a potential exposure to COVID, And then we had another, they came back, and then another classroom had a potential exposure, but everyone came back negative from all of those. We've been told as soon as there is a positive case in the building, we're going full full virtual, which is a relief. That's a a more stringent uh, response plan than had originally had rolled out. So uh, (laughs) I just hope it's not me when it happens at this point. Yeah, the, the school year started off okay on my end. And then Thursday, um, which would be September 3rd, uh, everything kind of went to hell. Uh, We got an email from administration that basically said the current system is not working for the kids and it's not working for the parents. So instead of pushing through with the current system, which has some major problems, we're doing just like full revolutionary upheaval and completely changing the way our remote learning works. And it was a great and awesome decision, and I love what they did. Um, they're essentially reducing the amount of work expected on both teachers and students, and like reducing the amount of screen time for students. But it meant that two weeks of my planning went out the window. 
So there was a very rough period of adjustment where I hated everything for about 48 hours and I was trying to figure out how on earth to do like this capstone project that I had been working towards for four weeks under the new uh, conditions. But um, I'm expecting things to be a lot better as of uh, tomorrow. So It's cool that you had a school administrator willing to tear off the Band-Aid. Normally they just march slowly into the grave with bad decisions. So uh, I'm impressed. I was too. Like, it was just full admission of like, hey, we're getting emails from some of our best kids that are like, I can't keep up with what's going on. And it's the amount of workload they normally would have had in school. But asking them to do that from home and sit in front of a computer for eight plus hours is really rough on someone that age. Like, it's very different sitting down and like playing League of Legends or some stupid BS for six or eight hours versus like trying to concentrate on schoolwork for that long. Amen. So, Brian, you mentioned in the last episode that you were going to work on your doc. How did that go? So my my parents are visiting. It's Labor Day weekend. They came in Friday night. We worked uh, for about 10 hours on Saturday, about 12 hours on Sunday. It's now Monday. I've been up since 730 this morning working. They are out there with my girlfriend still working. Uh, I had committed to recording this podcast in the middle of the day, thinking they'd be long gone by now. But as any DIY project goes, it's just one hiccup after another. And like, oh, we lost 20 minutes here. We lost an hour here. We need to go buy another tool. This is the wrong piece of wood. Go back. I've been to Lowe's about 14 times in the last three days. So uh, it's... It's pretty standard, but uh, they are outside working right now. But the deck is gorgeous; like it is completely screened in. We sealed off some other areas that bugs could get in, and it it's gonna be a beautiful space to hang out. And I'm super stoked. Very nice. So on my end, my free time has been full of Fire Emblem Three Houses. I'm now on my second playthrough. Which, oddly enough, is better than the first playthrough in terms of, like, actual joy that it is bringing me. Because now I understand the game and what's going on, and I get to, like, see the nuances of my decision changing the story. And you also have, like, New Game Plus options that let you carry over some of your stuff from other times. And you actually get to explore more of, like, the character classes and such that it becomes really hard to do the first time around. Um... So that's been a blast. What about you, Brian? Well, in the last episode, I mentioned how we were redoing our bedroom and how I went through a bunch of paint and all that stuff. So we finished the bedroom project. I feel like my closet could be like on Reddit now under like closet porn or something. Like I'm utilizing every square inch of my closet now, which is kind of nice. Got rid of this big Oakley dresser we had and now our room's very clean and modern and it's just great. Uh, other than that, I just started playing Pokemon Yellow for the first time yesterday i had played blue and silver at the start of covid and i've just been looking for something to do and yellow seemed like a good thing to do like i don't really have any interest in the gens after silver so here we are so that's on and you have an emulator right or do you actually have a game i have an iphone emulator okay yeah i thought so yeah i actually i a friend of mine posted on facebook that he was selling a switch and uh, he wanted 350 for the Switch, like the full-size Switch, plus uh, Pokemon, Smash, Mario Kart, 
Zelda and some other stuff and and a bunch of controllers and that's felt like an insane deal considering I was thinking about buying a Switch anyway. So I fired off on that. So I will be playing Pokemon. I think it's Sword, but I don't actually know whichever one is coming with my Switch by the end of the week. And that's the first time I've played Pokemon since it was on Game Boy Advance. I think like Leaf Green was the last one I played. And uh I I watched some Pokemon uh like tournament videos recently and it seriously felt like if somebody who played magic during alpha beta and unlimited came back and tried to draft time spiral block just like the number of things happening and like items being used and like static effects and like changes to the battlefield i was just like whoa i have so much to learn and i'm excited about it nice. <laughs> so i'm looking forward to that the competitive pokemon scene is kind of crazy um i played from pokemon sword uh it's fine. Like, if this is your first comeback to the series in a long time, you're gonna see a lot of cool things. And, like, you're gonna actually get to see Pokemon on the map, like, wandering around like they were if it was, like, the real world oh, or something sick, like that. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of quality of life updates from when you last played. Nice. Yeah, j- just like the quality of life updates from, like, blue version to leaf green, where it's just, like, running was a thing you could do or like when you approach a bush you'd like to cut you could just like press a and it gives you the option to cut it instead of going into your pokemon menu and selecting cut from the guy who has it so yeah i'm sure uh, in the 10 15 years since then things have just gotten really great all right so we had quite a bit of feedback after the last episode on you know whether or not wizards of the coast should do anything and what possible cards they should look at well, one of the biggest discussion points was Oko versus Show and Tell, and I think it's only fair to let Brian start on this one. So it was interesting in our intro that uh, you said I was wrong. That's not the vibe I got. So uh, basically, in the last episode, I said, why are we so mad about Oko, a card that's like really good, but we're totally comfortable with show and tell, which costs the same amount, same converted mana cost, same color, and you lose the game when it resolves, like straight up. And uh, that prompted a conversation on Twitter. A lot of uh, big legacy brains got involved. And mostly what was determined is that comparing show and tell to Oko is not a useful exercise. Uh, Like someone else said, like, it's more like Oath of Druids. And I was like, how is it? different than how is that different than show and tell and it also costs more mana what are you talking about and basically the exercise of comparing oko to any combo piece was mostly deemed irrelevant but uh the the main point for the pro show and tell crowd is that you can hone your whole game plan around making show and tell not resolve and whereas an oko deck like you're fighting the you're fighting the Dreadhorde Arcanist and the Delver that came before it. Uh, you're fighting the Uro or the Jace that comes after it. And you don't get to play a one-dimensional game plan. Like uh, Your opponent, you have to cover everything. You have to cover creatures. You have to cover Planeswalkers. And uh, Oko, is just, it just feels different than Show and Tell. So like, uh, which, which I get, like obviously. But at the same time, there was a contingent who were arguing that the payoff of if your Oko resolves is you turn their Chalice of the Void into an Elk. The Oko of Shontel, or the the payoff of Shontel resolves is three mana Grizzlebrand, which is obviously a totally different thing. 
So it was a really interesting conversation. Nothing was resolved because there, there's just multiple points to be had. There's not a resolution to find. But uh, it, it was cool to hear everyone's thoughts on that ideal. From yeah. the Reddit side, uh, the biggest argument regarding uh, show and tell is that the show and tell deck has to play a lot of uncastables. Like you're stuck, like you're forced to play crystal brands and emeralds that you can li- literally never cast. And they're only good when you have show and tell. So it's an A plus B combo. Where Oko is just A. But Oko is also not a combo. Well, that's the point. That's the point. Like, it, sure, like, it, if you want to have turn two Grizzlebrand, you should have to jump through some hoops. Like, versus having, like, a resolve your, your three mana, like, weird Vindicate. Like, that, there's... I agree with there's you. There's just a totally different payoff for what you're, you have to do. I agree with you, but it's, like, why the example was bad to begin with. Whoa. So this <laughs> this thread goes on for a long time. Like there's there's twenty nine different responses to this thread on Reddit or, or something like that. And there's a lot of really, really cool stuff there. Um I really liked one of the points about force of negation. Um the gist of it was that force of negation was maybe underappreciated by us or we understated how good it is versus fair creature decks because these blue decks having more answers to cards like ether vial or cards like the glimpse of natures and natural orders out of elves and these are kind of these must counter cards even though there aren't very many of them having more answers to that and more options to find off your cantrips to answer those things is a really, really big deal for those fair decks. Yeah, it is kind of funny that the blue player can't even make the mistake of like, like if you have Force of Will and your opponent has Elvish Visionary and then they put Wirewood Symbiote on the stack, you're like, oh, do I force that? And then you just lose the natural order next turn every time. So you can't even (laughs) make that mistake with Force of Negation. You're just locked into countering the correct spell. Yeah, also regarding Force of Negation, there was a few people that decided that I wasn't allowed to discuss anti-combo cards. Like, uh, my resume just says that I'm not allowed to discuss anything that's potentially negative for combo, which is... I agree with that. Yeah, that sounds good. Completely. Uh, but, like, my point is that, like, when here on the podcast, my primary goal is to discuss legacy and the health of legacy. Some people are trying to think I'm, like, trying to push a personal agenda or something. That's not the case. I love legacy. I care about its growth. If you think I'm only here to push propaganda to make Storm 2% better, I feel bad for you. Yeah, I thought you were here to sell Van Right of Flame t-shirts and lingerie. Well, Phil, the lingerie was a one-off that I made for you. Don't look for that one in the eShop. It's not there. All right, and then the last bit of feedback is, why didn't we talk about Days, Astrolabe, or Veil of Summer? Well, the episode was primarily focused on Rug Delver. We understand that Days is in Rug Delver. But we don't think it's a card that Wizards is real realistically going to look at during the next possible uh, banning and legacy. Like we understand that Rug is very good, but I don't know. It's just like not a card that we thought Wizards would take a stab at. Also, I'm pretty sure we talked about Days quite a bit in that episode. It didn't get a header section the way some of the other things did, but like. I specifically remember talking about the precedent of Popper, where Days was banned instead of Delver. Yeah, that did and, happen. And like, like we had that conversation. So, uh, yeah, I, I, like, yeah, the Astrolabe and Veil that just wasn't the conversation, and we did touch on Days. 
So the last thing is, I brought this up. This wasn't feedback from anyone, but if we look at the results over the last few weeks, uh, Rugdalver has continued to dominate. Uh, Magic Online user Beanie went 10-0 in a challenge, winning it. And then the next week went 6-0, lost in top four. So they won 17 straight matches with Rugdalver, which is pretty phenomenal. But at the same time, there's a number of events going on every weekend now. And Snow started to come back quite a bit. Like Snow actually won a couple of large events. So I don't know if the answer is strictly Dreadhorde anymore, at least based on my uh, conclusion at the end of the last episode. Because I think if Rugdelver gets any worse, maybe Snow becomes the best act. But then again, we thought that three months ago and that didn't happen. So I'm going to shut my trap because I'm rambling and I'm done. All right. Yeah, like basically, I, I'm I'm not going to belabor this point, but basically what Bryant was just describing is a metagame shift. Like you can build snow to smush Delver and then that snow deck's going to lose to every combo deck it plays against. Like that's just a metagame evolving. Like That's what we're seeing. All right, um, let's transition into sort of our MTG quick hits then. Um, I suppose I'll start. I had like a really good week of magic where I didn't play against Rug Delver once or Oko once, and I was just like so happy playing my fair bullshit. Um, I had a crazy black white taxes league where I tried out main deck eliminates and plague engineer as well as a handful of other things, um, and then I started messing around with affinity. And I don't mean like Steel Stompy, I mean like I was playing Memnites and Ornithopters. And it was both fun and good in a way that I was not expecting. And I actually played games for pleasure, not while I was recording or producing content with it, uh, which is saying something. Turns out that putting cranial plating on Crystalline Giant is fucking hilarious. Nice. Phil, were you in the practice room? No, no. I, I like, <laughs> yeah. got a 4-1 with Affinity. Phil was one of those guys in the practice room that's like, legacy, no counters, no discard, no Oko. <laughs> <laughs> and then rage quits if you play any of those cards. What you- now, uh, Affinity is sweet. Like that. That's just like a crazy powerful mechanic buried in Magic's past. The I One of the earliest legacy tournaments I won, like actual first place, I won with Affinity. And I beat an Affinity Mirror in the top four. And it, there was just this one week. I think that uh, a, a now-canceled former Magic Pro had done well on the Star City circuit with Affinity the week before. And me and someone else both put it together. And we just met in top four. And then I won the tournament. And the deck was sweet. So the cards are out there. And they like Affinity is one of those things that just gets better as they print more artifacts. It sounds like Emery has pseudo-Affinity. Like, it doesn't really have it, but... It pretty much does. Yeah, it, I mean, Affinity is a, uh, I forget how they codify it, but it's not, it's not a, uh, an ability. It, it's like reminder. It's like imprint. Like it, it just signifies that an ability is going to happen. So like Emery just does have Affinity. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but like, sorry, this is a little bit unrelated, but I remember, like, not understanding this as a kid. Like, my opponent would go, they they would announce cap thought cast. They would check the number of artifacts and then pay blue with the chromatic star or sphere in play and then sack it. Like, that would drive me nuts because, like, I was like, well, the artifact's gone. This doesn't make any sense. Like, you seem like the type of person that would understand this better. Uh, yeah, there are steps involved to casting a spell. And the last one, or the second to last one is 
pay costs. So uh, you announce the spell, you lock in the cost, you pay the cost, then it's placed on the stack. So when you announce the spell, lock in your costs, you have Chromatic Star. When you're asked to pay the cost, you can sack the Chromatic Star, and then the thing goes on the stack. So like it all happens like the eye can't see it, obviously, but there are actual steps in the comprehensive rules about how spells are cast and abilities are activated. Well, that specific interaction is bullshit. It's the same reason you can uh, KCI, like overpay with KCI to shove your whole grave, whole board into the graveyard and rebuy it all with the same scrap trawler. So, uh, same thing. Alright, well I guess I'll go next. Uh, I hit a pretty cool point with uh, the Epic Storm version 10.8. I broke 300 matches, and over those 300 matches I'm sitting at a very respectable 63 match win percentage overall. And I decided, like, hey, 300 matches is a lot. Let me compare this to my historical data sheet. Since I started tracking data at the banning of Sensei's Divining Top, there's only one other list that has more matches, but I don't think uh, 10.8 is going to hit that point. With uh, version 7.5, I got up to 485 matches before I uh, went to the next one, so that was pretty cool. And for reference, 7.5 was the first playable Mox Opal list. Uh, other than that, I've recently uh, priced out and organized my entire collection. I decided it's been like a year since I've done so, and I like knowing what my collection is worth. I have it all like stored away safely and whatnot, but someone was talking to me about possibly insuring my collection. I'm sure Brian might do the same. I don't know. We'll find out. But I've looked into it into the past, and like with homeowner's insurance, if it ever leaves your property, it's no longer insured, and that's sort of an issue, at least when I looked into it. And it was like $750 a year. And then I've looked into collectibles insurance before, which would cover it if it ever left my property. The downside of this is that it's super expensive. I believe for what my collection is worth at the time, they said it would cost like $2,000 a year. And I don't really want to pay $2,000 a year. So it's pretty costly. And I've heard bad experiences about these companies before. Like I had a very close friend whose collection was worth roughly $32,000. Uh, have their house broken into and stolen. And after arguing with the insurance company, fighting with them on the phone, eventually getting a lawyer involved, they got 17 grand back out of that 35 or 32. Um, but regardless, it was about a little over half of what their collection was actually insured for. So, like, is that worth the money you're paying every year? I don't know. Uh, so, I, I do have my collection insured on top of my homeowner's insurance and uh i have had in the past when i asked about it with previous insurance companies they said like uh no way we don't do that or it's just outrageously expensive to do or if it leaves your property it doesn't count like all the things you just said but when i floated it to when i bought this current house and got my insurance i floated it to the insurance agent and he was just like oh yeah for sure we do that and uh Basically, the way it works is that I get, got my collection appraised and signed off on the value, and then uh, they, I think it's called a rider, uh, is that the, the term? Uh, so they added a number of $10,000 riders onto my home insurance, homeowner's insurance until it, like the, it hit the total value of the collection, and it's affordable. I don't know exactly what I pay, but it's negligible enough that I don't feel it like i don't know that i pay two grand a year or whatever because it's not that and uh, i specifically asked like i travel the world with these cards if my backpack gets stolen in california am i covered and he said yeah definitely so 
maybe I'm just super lucky and have the coolest insurance agent on the planet, but uh, it was pretty easy for me to roll into homeowners. Okay, maybe I can do that again. All right, so uh, two weeks ago when I recorded, I said I was about to make Mythic because I was enjoying Amiket Draft so much, and I hit a hard wall at Diamond 1 on uh, on the arena ladder. If you're not familiar with the arena ladder, Diamond 1 is the last thing. If you're in Diamond 1 and you uh, net five match wins, you're Mythic. And over four nights of nonstop drafting, I think I drafted 20-plus times, I could not break Diamond 1. I just would go up to like the middle of Diamond 1, drop down to the top of Diamond 2, and just push back up, fall back down. And I absolutely could not get over the finish line. So kudos to the the people who make Mythic every month, because it's not easy. Like, I had always like sat here like, oh, yeah, I just don't care, or else I would easily make Mythic. And I guess that's not always true. Though, I did start laddering a week before the season ended so if i had a whole month i think i could have done it but i I did not cakewalk through it the way i thought i was going to but the format was still sweet Uh, i co-streamed with uh with sky bills uh if you uh don't know sky bills she's a speedrunner turned magic streamer she played in the first mythic invitational or yeah mythic invitational whatever that huge thing was at pax that year that andrea mangucci won uh, she played in that, she made day two, and now she's a full-time Magic streamer, and we drafted some Amniket together, and it was a lot of fun. That was the first time I was live in a long time, but I'm not about to bring my Twitch back to life. It, I, it reminded me why I don't stream anymore, although it was fun to do that one time. Speaking of which, I was talking about this with somebody the other day, because I didn't record my last two Legacy Challenges. Uh, two weeks ago, I tried to double queue the Pioneer Challenge and the Legacy Challenge, and yesterday, I just didn't record at all. And someone was like, why aren't you recording? And it's because I I found that Google Hangouts and playing with your friends is so much more fun than recording or streaming. Like, I really don't like streaming. I don't mind recording, but like I don't want to have to record every Sunday or every Saturday and every Sunday. Um, it's just a little taxing. Streaming is work. Like, it's it's fun. And that's why I do it. But, like, it is, you know, I record seven Monster Train runs a week. That's about seven hours worth of constant. I stream a minimum of two days a week, usually for a three to four hour block. Like, it eats up a lot of time. And it's time where you're, like, mentally checked on, like, entertaining somewhere on the order of 100 people while also trying to play Magic. And also trying to run the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, like the tech, and like you get like people in your chat like, hey, you're dropping a lot of frames, and you're like, fuck, I don't even know what that means. How do I fix it? And then like I'm trying to do that while I'm entertaining the chat, while I play Magic at a level worth watching. So it, it is work. Ugh. When I switched to YouTube, my quality of life got so much better. Not to mention, uh, no fear of being ghosted or anything like that. You know, like especially with the decks that I play, like the cards in my hand. Like, at least to me, feel like they have so much higher value because, like, half the fear of playing against Storm is not knowing what they have. I don't know. You, you should just make, like, a uh, hand cover-up, like, generator thing where it just generates a random Storm hand. Then every time you play a card, it, like, generates a new random card. So anyone who goes to you just has completely wrong information. And everyone watching you also doesn't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's going to be great. Or uh, the Anurag Das approach of just, like, seven cards that are always the nuts being your cover of your hand. Yeah. 
I, I know Michael Jacob. I used to watch him stream like many years ago, probably six, seven years ago when there weren't many magic streamers. But Michael Jacob, I watched most afternoons. And he even said in his in his bio, he was like, I don't care if I'm getting ghosted. That just evens the scales. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking gas. So just to talk about this while like we're here, ghosting is like the absolute worst thing that you can do to a content creator because it kills whatever content they're making. Because you have to make a choice of like either I cover up my hand and I can't talk about what I'm doing and it allows me to have a better chance of winning this game. Or, but if you do that, then you're not engaging with your audience anymore, and you're not really entertaining. And, like, when you get ghosted, it just sucks all of the energy out of the room. It is horrible. Yeah, like, when you, when you go live, you just ex- have to accept ghosting as a thing that's going to happen. Like, I've seen tons of Twitter threads from big streamers about this, like, Caleb Durward, like I'm gonna I'm gonna play in the mocks. I'd like to stream it. How should I protect myself? And everyone is like, don't stream it. Like that's because ri- anything you would do to throw off a ghoster also ruins your audience engagement, which is the whole point of streaming. So it, it is a bad time. All right. Uh, not on that note. I do have one more Magic Online thing that I want to talk about. Um, I learned something about Magic Online after I don't know X number of years of playing with it this morning. Uh, so, I made a passing comment on one of my videos that was just like, oh, my kingdom to be able to, like, build decks with cards that I don't own on Magic Online. Well, it turns out you can do that. There is a filter option, which by default is set in a range of 1 to 20 copies. So Magic Online will only show you cards that you own if you own between 1 and and 20 copies of it. It turns out that left of that 1, there is another option. You can click it to zero, and then you can build with cards that you don't own. Oh, Phil. (sighs) I never knew this. This was something that had never been communicated to me in, I don't know, five years of playing on Magic Online. I learned this uh, recently with the the Gen Con events. Um, When I played in the Vintage Super League, and they gave me a quote-unquote god account, what they actually did was put... 4x sealed sets of every set into an account and i had to open all of them to get access to the cards and then when i heard so when i heard that gen con was offering god accounts to everyone to play i was like how the hell are they going to do that for this many people that's abysmal but what they actually did was they removed the requirement for you to own any copies of a card to play them in a tournament so all you had to do was slide that that slider over to zero, and you now had a god account, which was really clever. Yep. So I, I say this as a warning to all of those out there. Don't make my mistake. Just know that you don't have to open up text files and type in the cards that you want to change deck lists if you're using a loan account or something like that. All right. So why don't we get into today's topic? We're going a little bit long. What? Do we do that here? That's never happened before. Alright, so our topic for today is evaluating new cards for existing decks. So, a lot of times when you're, you know, in spoiler season, you see this new thing and you're like, oh, that's broken. 
and you ask yourself this question of like, does this slot into some existing deck already? Do I need to build a new deck around a card? These are the sorts of things that we want to be looking at today. So as a starting question, maybe you you figured out that a card is good. You might want to say, does this card have a home? Because is this card good? And is this card playable in Rug Delver? Those are very, very different questions that lead you to different places. There's also the fact that like a card might be good, but it might not have a home too, right? Like sometimes there's good cards that just like don't see play. Uh, for example, like Sprite Dragon is a great card, but it doesn't really have a home in the current legacy. Or Hope of Girapur took a year plus to actually see play in your deck as well. Yeah. And then quickly was no longer played. These role players come and go. Brightling, your moment in the sun was far too short. That card was never good, Phil. Fuck you, it was great. I, I lost a Miracle's Mirror to Anurag Das when he had Brightling. It was at like a Star City 40 duels tournament. And I was like, this card sucks, but I can't beat it. <laughs> you heard it here first. Brightling sucks. Hot take of 2020. All right. All right. So 5, five Brightling challenge has begun. Get out there, people. Do your thing. When you're looking at these new cards, sometimes it's important to ask, like, is this better than something that already exists? Uh, for example, there was a card spoiled a few days ago that was essentially electricery, but if you kicked it, it dealt two damage. That's just pyroclasm. So, like, you can have a three-mana pyroclasm or just pyroclasm. And granted, this new card is an instant, but those are the sort of things you have to ask yourself. Like, does something else that already exists, is that better? Or is this just, like, something cute and new? Yeah, and there's, like, a number of three-mana instant speed pyroclasms that already exist that aren't played. So just think about what already exists before you get excited about something new. Yeah, um, Kozilex Return being a great example of those, where, like, that thing being colorless just was a, a big screw you to Mother of Ruins yeah, in particular. Yeah, wrecked Mother. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's also Pyroclasm, like the... Like the one that only hurts non-pirates. So you could, there's even a build-around version. But nope, unplayable. Yeah, so you at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, like, what are the advantages and disadvantages of trying out these, these new cards? Because, like, there's a billion different kilt spells that are playable in Legacy, for example. But, like, how does this one change your matchup dynamics? And it might sound silly to say, but sometimes changing a single card in your deck can completely change matchup percentages or how a matchup is supposed to be played. And this is especially true in Legacy, where you have decks full of tutors and cantrips so that you can consistently find and execute these game plans. In terms of like adding these cards to your decks. Um, conceptually, I think there's different types of cards that we see during spoiler season. Sometimes it's the the easy strict upgrade, where like an old card has just been outclassed. But more often than not, there's a series of gains and losses associated with adding a card to your deck. And while you gain in some areas, you lose in other areas as a result of putting this in. Like what, Phil? 
Give, give us an example. Um, how about when Council's Judgment was printed? So when Death and Taxes got Council's Judgment, that made cards like Disenchant largely fall out of the sideboard. But that means you become much slower at answering problematic artifacts or enchantments. So, for example, while you might be able to disenchant the Sylvan Library the same turn that it's played, you might not be able to Council's Judgment the Sylvan Library the same turn that it's played, especially if you're on the draw or something like that. So even though Council's Judgment is a far more flexible card, it loses out on speed. So there are these these trade-offs that you take in picking different cards. Would you say that it ends up changing the dynamic of most of these matchups? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another one is uh, Cavern of Souls and Elves. Uh, like, obviously you don't want your elves to get countered, and against blue decks, uh, Cavern of Souls can totally flip the script, especially uh, back in the day when I was really playing elves and Cavern came out, Counterbalance top was the deck in Legacy, and uh, Cavern of Souls just broke that matchup wide open. But you have these other cards that care that you have forests in place specifically. So, and you also have a diverse number of creature types. Even though the it's an elf deck, you also have insects to cast. You have archons and beasts, and uh, sometimes uh, you have to keep a one lander and. You're a one like Forest Quarian Ranger is a banger. Cavern of Souls Quarian Ranger is probably a mulligan. So there's there's push and pull to a card like that as well. And a lot of times when you start adding cards like that, it actually impacts a lot of your deck building, right? So if you're playing four Cavern of Souls in your elves deck for some reason, then like natural order starts to look a little bit worse, right? Because it gets just like that little bit harder to cast green green um, for a non-creature spell or yep. something like that. And green, the reliability of green sun zenith for dryad arbor on turn one like plummets like straight to the floor. Like you count on green sun zenith to be a functional land or elf in that deck a lot of the time, and cavern can't cast it at all. So I think we've seen a little bit of what we're discussing right now with doomsday. Like Doomsday is a deck that took the world by storm within the last six months due to the printing of Thassa's Oracle. In the first couple of lists, we saw a number of them having a copy of Cavern of Souls somewhere in the 75, so that way you can make your Oracle uncounterable. The problem with that is that Cavern of Souls doesn't cast anything else in your deck, especially Doomsday. You really want your lands to tap for black in that deck, and can you afford a colorless land within your deck? So more recently, we've been seeing less and less Cavern of Souls. As a side note, just since we brought up Doomsday, like, holy crap, that hard is, that deck is hard to fight against. Like, a lot of the decks that I play historically have been able to ride Chalice of the Void and Thorn of Amethyst and cards of that nature to victory against combo decks, and it's just, like, not true against Doomsday. I lost a game where I went, like, three hate cards in the first two turns, and they were just like, ha ha, black, 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 Doomsday, you're dead the following turn. So, people like to attack Doomsday like it's a Storm deck. And I will say this once again, Doomsday is not a Storm deck. Not because it doesn't use the Storm mechanic, it doesn't anymore, but like, it is not built like a Storm deck. So it doesn't care if you have a deafening silence in play or a ley line in the void. And I will see clips or like Twitter screenshots where like, people will post that their opponent had a deafening silence, ley line of the void, and chalice on one in play. 
Doomsday doesn't care about these cards. Like, quit trying to beat that deck like it's Storm. So, like, granted, all these cards, in th- well, Playline's garbage, but the other two can slow it down. But you really want to beat Doomsday like it's a show-and-tell deck. Like, you want to make sure its core card doesn't resolve, and you want to mess with it in other ways. But, like, Chalice on one, and, like, you can only play one spell per turn. It just doesn't matter. Like, I've seen screenshots of Chalice 1, Chalice 2, Trinisphere, then their opponent being dead. Like, yep. it doesn't matter when their key card costs 3. I haven't yet figured out how to solve that problem from, like, the Chalice-style decks, because, like, Show, show and Tell is also kind of a card that's hard to fight against. Um, but that card is... Or that deck is very good, in my opinion, and probably should be seeing a little bit more play. But again, people don't pivot to that sort of deck nearly as much as they should. The deck's also just daunting. Like I, I, I think I don't I don't think I'm out of line to say I, I understand Legacy pretty well. And I have not I I've had Doomsday built in both Legacy and Vintage on Magic Online since Thassa's Oracle came out. I've been updating the lists as they get updated. I've been paying attention, and I have not tried a league with either one because I'm just like, I'm gonna mess this up so many times, <laughs> and 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 that's just like the easy stuff. Like once you get to the the complicated stuff, it's like okay, my opponent has Deafening Silence, Chalice, Chalice, Thorn of Amethyst, Trinisphere. What do I do? And and there is an answer because, as you said, you keep losing to the, in those situations. But I don't know if I can figure it out that quickly. But really, the only way to do it is to do it. I just need to stop being a wuss. There was somebody on Twitter, I forget who it was, who started saying like, "Yeah, I started winning with Doomsday way more when I started keeping a spreadsheet of piles that beat these combination of cards." So it's like the Leyline plus Chalice pile, the Deafening Silence plus Chalice pile, or something like that. And just like have those mental shortcuts ready. It's kind of a meme in the the vintage community, but it is also true. Uh, Stephen Menendian wrote a literal book about how to cast gush. He basically just outlined every single situation that you could possibly want to gush in, and what's the best way to do it in that situation. And he has done a similar thing for Vintage Doomsday, but th- this was the old list, like Prethos's Oracle. This this is like ten years old at this point, but I know that he did have a massive database of doomsday piles written as well. And that's what you have to do. If you want to play this deck, like chess clocks are the best thing for doomsday. But if you take that to the tour, the actual tournament, you go 30 seconds in the tank, trying to figure out your pile, the judge is coming and and you're done. So you need to be fluid by the time you show up in paper tournament with it. All right. I, I pause this to derail for a minute there, but I think it was worth it. Okay, uh, so kind of one of the next questions we had was, like, how does adding a card impact the rest of your main deck? Because most of the time, it isn't just, I'm removing card number 60, and I'm trying this out. A lot of times, you need to change a lot of your deck when you're just adding, you know, quote-unquote, one card. And you have to think about whether or not the upside of some card is worth changing your entire deck for. Like, does your mana base need to change to support it? Does the existence of this card cause you to want other things? Well, we saw a lot of that with Dreadhorde, right? Like, we saw that the old standard used to be Rough and Tumble, for example. More recently, it's been Blazing Valley. We've seen a return of Chain Lightning and Preordain, especially Preordain. Like, that's a card that, like, didn't see a lot of play in Tempo decks. And then Dreadhorde made that card the gold standard. You play four of it now. Yeah, when 
in, in the uh, the Ren and Six Rug Delver era, there was the like Nimble Mongoose versus Hex Drinker debate, and just the having Nimble Mongoose in your deck made it so all of your non-Delver threats are ruined by graveyard hate, and Hex Drinker was just one that doesn't care about the graveyard. So that just changed what you needed to do in the sideboard. Like if you want to play a deck with exclusively cards that get bricked by rest in peace, you need more answers to rest in peace in your deck. And with something like Hex Drinker, you can sidestep it. So these little changes, little tweaks, vastly affect what you actually need to be doing. Yeah, the, the sideboard is a great point. Because a lot of times when you add something new to the main deck, you're often like either shoring up some problematic matchup or maybe you're improving something else but it often comes at the cost of some other weakness so you often either free up some sideboard slots or like cause some new sideboard slots to be needed to deal with problems that you've created for yourself the best example i can think of this is if we go all the way back to the printing of dream and a true name nemesis if you remember the uh, Jeskai Delver deck that Owen Turtonwald won GP Washington with, if you look at Owen's sideboard, it was all anti-combo. That's because Owen's main deck was so good against everything fair that Owen decided that True Name was good enough versus every mid-range deck in the format, and the only thing Owen feared was combo, so Owen played four Metally Mage, plus I think sideboard spell pierces. I might be wrong on that one, but it was definitely four Metally Mage in the sideboard of your Delver deck. And that was a big innovation at the time of just recognizing, like, hey, I don't need to cyborg for mid-range anymore. I have that down. There have been a lot of recent examples with cards like Abraid and Brazen Borrower improving matchups against, like, random chalice piles or something like that, so that you can skirt a little bit more on that sort of thing for post-cyborg games. Yeah, and, uh, like, y'all know me, Fair Blue, and a lot of the times the decks that just uh, Ramburgle, Fair Blue are like Dredge or Reanimator or Storm you know, combo decks at, or decks that are playing on an unfair axis. And if I want to fill my sideboard up with like Rest in Peace and Grafdigger's Cage and that sort of thing, I need to think about my Snapcaster Mages, my Accumulated Knowledges, like all of that sort of stuff in the main deck. So it, it it's all on a scale. You can't just shove things in willy-nilly and not plan for what that does to your the rest of your deck. So kind of the last generic thing that I want to talk about before we actually like try to delve into some actual examples is how many cards do you run while testing? Because I have a feeling that different types of players would answer this very differently. So for example, um, Brian, let's say that there's some new removal spell that looks pretty good. How many might you try in a blue-white deck of some nature? So there, there's a, a slightly selfish split to answering this question. If I'm like jumping into Magic Online leagues, I'll hedge towards less. Like I'll just try like one, and when I draw it, I'll remember how it is. If I'm sitting with a friend where it's free, I, I might try four. To like if if I'm testing for the Pro Tour, I'll uh, in a in a group. And we want to try a new card. We we start with four. Uh, sometimes we go like five or six just to see what it looks like when we draw one. Sometimes we'll say like, okay, draw six and your seventh card is this thing we want to see in action. So uh, if we're in the nuts and bolts of testing, I want to max out seeing that thing as much as possible. If I'm 
just trying something new in a league with stakes, uh, I'll do the smallest version possible and just see how it looks when I draw it. That's yeah. interesting. I, I At least from my perspective is I like the middle of the road approach where if I want to see like, let's say fatal push, how good fatal push is, I might want to try two or three just so that way I know I'm going to draw. But then again, I don't do a whole lot of paper testing anymore. Yeah, so my, my guess when I asked that question was that Brian was going to say he would test one or two copies of something. Because in these cantrip decks, you get so many looks over the course of a game in order to find something. But me, as like the vile chalice player with very little or no additional card draw and card selection, if I want to test a new card, I usually have to shove four of them in a deck list so that I reliably see them in games. So a lot of times right. when I start testing, I start by over-testing to get a feel for how good the card is, and then I reel back once I have results. Yeah, it depends on the card, too. Like, if we're talking about, like, uh, Lightning Bolt, or like, if a new, like, red removal spell gets printed in my Jeskai deck, I, I, I might try, like, three plows in one of this thing. If we're talking about, like, Oko, or, like, Jace the Mind Sculptor, you know, something that's, like, obviously bananas and belongs in this deck, I do want to play more of those, so I really see how they take over a game or not. All right, um, so go ahead. I was going to say, why don't we hop into the card you're very excited to discuss? All right, um, so the whole reason that I wanted to do this kind of episode topic today was to talk about Skyclave Apparition, uh, because I've gotten, gotten a lot of messages about this one, as usually happens when bad white creatures are spoiled. Um, but this is actually, like, a really good white creature, so I, I actually have real good things to say about it this time. Alright, starting with the obligatory, this is an audio format. Skyclave Apparition costs one colorless and two white for a 2-2 core spirit. When it enters the battlefield, exile up to one target non-land, non-token permanent you don't control with CMC 4 or less. And when it leaves play, the exiled card's owner creates an XX blue illusion creature token, where X is the converted mana cost of the exiled card. So the TLDR of that is nuke a permanent that costs less than four, and if they get rid of the Skyclave Apparition, they get a blue illusion token, with power and toughness equal to its converted mana cost. Okay, so here we go. How, how does a 2-2 a two, two for 3 mana sound to, to you gents? Would have been really good in alpha. <laughs> sounds like sounds like a Phil Gallagher card all day. Yeah, so this is the, the problem with a lot of uh, white cards in, in Legacy, is that they have these like terribly undersized bodies, but a great effect stapled to them. So when you compare this body to something like Delver or Tarmogoyf or Knight of the Reliquary or whatever, like, these stats are not good. However, this answers damn near anything that is on the battlefield in Legacy. Merit Lodge is perhaps the most notable exception, and there's going to be other things from time to time, like someone gets real spicy and plays a Chandra Awakened Inferno or something like that. But what... what actual permanence with CMC 5 or greater do we regularly see in Legacy. So you can't put this in off a show and tell and snag that Grizzle brand. That's a, a big one. Yes. Yeah, so you're missing like Grizzle brand, Emrakul, Omniscience, Batterskull, Batterskull, oh, Merit Lodge. Oh, you can't hit the germ, it's a token. Come on. Oh, man. reading stuff. 
Reading is very hard. Yeah. Um, so there is a downside to this card, right? So the upside is it answers everything. The downside is they get a dude out of it. But um, this sounds really similar to another card that we've uh, seen a lot of in Legacy recently, and that's that's Oko. Now, obviously, these are different, because Oko will just win the game on its own, and this won't. But this card stops whatever it is your opponent is trying to do, and if they get rid of this, they get an elk-sized card. And as we've seen in Legacy, downgrading card quality is actually a really, really big deal. And D&T specifically can go and deal with this little blue token with things like Flicker Wisp, or protection from blue with things like Mother Runes, um, or Sword of Fire and Ice, or something of that nature. Uh, also worth noting is, in order to unlock this illusion, it's not even like Oko, where it's just your thing is a 3-3 now. This is your thing is gone, and when you answer it, you get your 3-3-ish your three, three creature. So, and like we said, it's a 3-mana 2-2. Two, two. Is that going to be the most threatening thing on board? Like, if you have Supreme Verdict, it doesn't matter, but if you have Swords to Plowshares and you're facing down, like, Stoneforge Mystic, Thalia, this thing, like, is that is this going to be your target? So, uh, there, there's some push and pull there, too, that's pretty cool. There's also things like Mother Runes that protect it as well, that, like, complicate the equation further. Yeah, this is a, a, a pretty direct comparison to baffling end uh i don't know if that's what you I was guys who don't of. touch standard yeah so baffling end is a one in a white enchantment it's exile target creature with converted mana cost three or less when baffling end leaves the battlefield the exiled creatures control controller gets a three three trample dinosaur so you're this is the card quality uh and temporary reprieve formula that phil was just describing in standard you frequently used your baffling end to get rid of their one drop which is usually worse than a 3-3 trample. But then they're going to have to spend resources to answer your baffling end to get this thing. And by the time they answer it, a 3-3 is pretty on rate. So uh, really, the if you haven't played with baffling end, you might not see how good this card is. But I, I've cast a lot of baffling ends, and it's pretty close to hard removal. This is also... I, I'm just going to say, this is probably like the best Death and Taxes card printed in the last four years. Like, this is this is the best thing for the deck since about 2016, because it is so flexible. Most of the white cards that, you know, quote-unquote, are D&T playable are not flexible enough to really do the job that you want. So, for example, there's not just a disenchant creature in white that is of a reasonable cost, right? So you have to play the awkward Leon Relic Warrior. There aren't these, like, permanent exile creatures that are all slightly conditional, like Banisher Priest or Palace Jailer. Well, this one answers, you know, artifacts, creatures, planeswalkers, whatever. It just kills anything that you need it to kill. It's so flexible. Yes, it has a downside, but the range of things that this answers is ginormous. So, Phil, I have a question for you. And going back to a question that we asked above, which is... D&T over the last, I don't know, five years has cut a lot of the fat out of the deck. Like the cute one-ofs that we used to see, like your one-of Run Wingmare, your Big Thalia. All of these cards have slowly left the deck. Even cards like Mirren Crusader aren't very popular anymore. 
what are you removing to add a card like Skyclave Apparition? Ooh, that's a that's a deep question. So the the closest one to one overlap with this card is Phyrexian Revoker. It's not really a one to one overlap though, but Revoker would be the starting point for what I would look at removing for this. Revoker's job in the deck, generally speaking, is to stop the things that you otherwise can't stop. And Skyclave Apparition kind of does the same thing. But there's a problem, and that's that Revoker costs two mana, and this costs three. So Revoker is, like, so much more notably good versus combo than this card is. Um, when I start testing with this card, I will probably pull two Revokers from the deck, Palace Jailer, and then one other flex slot, and I'll start by testing four and over-testing this card. And more realistically, I see myself running two or three of these in the main deck of D&T. I do know, so I'm not trying to tell you how to build your deck, but I have a question, like, why is Palace Jailer the cut when Palace Jailer is often like a card you would get against blue decks to stay in the game because it does provide card advantage? Like, why is that? Like, I'm just curious for like a personal reason. Okay. Um, Palace Jailer is kind of a shit card that the deck needed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So Palace Jailer has severe issues versus the control decks now because so many of them are playing Ice Fang Kowaddle. And it used to be that the control decks have, like, three-ish Snapcaster Mages and maybe one or two other creatures that can realistically take the crown back. And now you have to worry about this end-of-turn 2-2 flash that if they get the crown, it becomes so incredibly hard for you to keep it. So why is Palace Jailer still in the deck, then, if it's not really as good against control as it used to be? It's because when you're playing the D&T Mirror, and you're the person who doesn't have the Palace Jailer in your deck, you are so incredibly unfavored in the mirror. Um, so um, XJ Cloud has been advocating removing Palace Jailer from the deck like for a long time, but often can't pull the trigger on it because it's so important in the mirror. And now this little core spirit is going to help out against the control decks by removing things like Oko and Jace that they're traditionally riding to victory, and you can do that without exposing yourself to the downside of Palace Jailer. What you just described sounds a lot like what the TES community went through with Past and Flame, so I, I get it. So, kind of going on some other things with this card. the What I just mentioned, like dealing with things like J Jace, Arcanist, Oko. DNT has really struggled with the 2019 cards. Um, you know, you can add any number of them to that list. Uh, Karn the Great Creator, Plague Engineer, or something like this. And this answers all of them. It just it just stops them all. And that cannot be, like, overemphasized. It also does so while avoiding a lot of interaction that something like a Delver deck might normally do. This dodges Pierce. This dodges Force of Negation. You can make it uncounterable off of Vile a lot of time. Um, this is going to be a really good answer to, like, Duff. As silly as it is to say that. But I think what Bryant was going on earlier is a really good point. Like, how do you actually slot this into the deck? It's not a strict upgrade over anything. It kind of plays a lot of roles, but you can't just keep adding shitty tutus to your deck forever. 
right? Like, historically, D&T has always needed to play some aggro cards to close the game. And you can't just play, like, four revokers and four of these generic tutus and expect to realistically clock your opponent. Because they play a Tarmogoyf, they have a 4-5 or five on the other side of the battlefield, and you go like, Oh god, I can never attack again. What, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to turn it into a 2-2 illusion. <laughs> the more of them you get, the better. Yeah. So, I think Death and Taxes pilots are going to go through a really interesting time period where this card improves so many matchups at the huge cost of your combo matchups being considerably worse. So you have to figure out, like, how do I keep the fair matchups where I want them to be while also going and beating something like Doomsday or, or Storm with some degree of consistency? Because if you leave yourself with, like, one tutorable Revoker and four Thalia's main deck, and, like, how on earth are you going to beat TES? Like, you're looking to steal both games two and three with sideboard cards, but if you can't, like, even have a real chance at getting game one most of the time because you only have five relevant cards in your deck, like, good luck. That's going to be hard. So I think a lot of people are going to test these Skyclave Apparitions, shove a whole bunch of three drops into their deck, and then realize they don't have as much early game interaction as they used to have. And so the biggest dance with D&T moving forward is, like, how does the creature base change to accommodate this card? Because this isn't just a case where you get to slot it in and it just replaces something. So to keep more two drops in the deck, do you start playing Sarah Avengers because they have evasion and they're a two drop? But then you have fewer castable turn two plays. Or do you want to play a bunch of three drops so that you can always leave your violet three? And then your deck's really slow and even worse against combo than it might have been otherwise. That's that's going to be the, the deck-building puzzle to figure out in the next few weeks. Sounds like you got your work cut out for you. Oh, oh yeah. Like, I have, I have a billion different things that I can say on this card. Like, I'll talk for a couple more minutes, and then we'll turn the, the podcast over to you two for kind of the, the tail end. This is, this is my word vomit post of the, the next couple of weeks. Yeah. This is like you you have a thousand piece puzzle and you solved it already and then you found another piece. <laughs> you just have to fit it into the already perfectly square puzzle. I'm I'm glad I don't have to figure this out. So a question that I had for you, Phil, was I imagine that this card is pretty good with flicker rest, but, but like you said, your threes are now getting very high. Like I don't I'm not sure like DNT standard for flicker rest is three right now. Um, th- three to four, like okay. three point five is probably standard. So, like this, actually, like Flicker Wisp is in the deck to answer things that like normally D and T couldn't answer. Like, is it possible that one of these takes a Flicker Wisp slot, so that way you're not playing twelve three drops or whatever? I don't know what D and T plays, but like, you know what I mean? Like, you're not going too high on the threes, uh, just because they do fill a similar rule, similar rule, but like, like you said, you can't answer Merilage or Crystal Brand or whatever. Yeah. Um, Flicker Wisp is one of the best cards in Death and Taxes because of, like, right now it answers everything, it stops everything, but if Skyclave Apparition starts taking on that role, then yeah, I think it's totally reasonable to test two or three Flicker Wisp rather than always three or four Flicker Wisp. 
The thing is, I think you need a critical density of flyers to push damage through if you're going to play a bunch of 2-2s that are going to sit there and get stonewalled a lot of times. But maybe if you start playing more Avengers, then, like, that's okay. Um, there's also a lot of other directions you can go with synergy for these things. Like, you can lean harder into Blink synergy and start playing something like, say, Eldrazi Displacer to Blink them and the tokens that they produce. You can go harder with the core synergy and Cavern of Souls, because Giver of Rune, Stoneforge Mystic, and this are all cores. Um... There's a lot. Would you say there are some cores in this house? I I don't think I would say that. I think you would say that. Uh, I'll say it a few more times. There are some cores in this house. Thank you, Brian. Continue. <laughs> All right. Um, but the weirdest thing this probably does is completely revolutionize the sideboard of death and taxes. So imagine this world where you're beating most of the fair decks in game one, and you don't need to really sideboard for fair decks anymore. Right now, it's very stock for DNT to have four to six cards that are for fair matchups. And what happens if you can start pulling out things like Pithing Needles and Council's Judgments from your sideboard? It allows you to completely address the combo matchups in different ways. And if you don't need things like Relic Order or Palace Jailer in the sideboard, like you might be able to change 10 cards of your sideboard to actually improve your combo matchups. So, for example, in, in Crazy Person Land, if you're losing to Doomsday all the time, you can throw a whole bunch of Chrome Mox into your sideboard and a pile of Sanctum Prelates. And right now, you would be crazy to spend six slots doing that. But if this apparition really solves most of the fair matchups and means that you don't need Council's Judgment and Relic Order and stuff like that, then that's something that you can actually explore. And by a similar fashion, your cards like Rest in Peace are going to get a lot better too. Because if you resolve a Rest in Peace and then you shut off a bunch of threats from your opponent's deck, your Skyclave Apparitions can be used more selectively and just hit the things like Oko that like slip through a Rest in Peace. There's a lot of push-pull here in what this card does to the sideboard. Um, Cataclysm is another stock card, for example, in DNT sideboards, but do you really want that if when you Cataclysm, your opponent is going to get two, like, what are they, uh, illusion tokens, and then they're going to have the better board after Cataclysm? Like, Please cut Cataclysm from DNT. I'm begging you. <laughs> That's the only way I lose. Yeah, that's uh, that's why Force of Will stays in post sideboard in uh, in a lot of those style build decks. So I will say this, Phil, and I know that we've had this debate before, but I think that the best card printed for DNT in the last four years, as you said, for Skycleave Apparition, uh, was. But I think it's actually Deafening Silence, and I know that Deafening Silence isn't that good against Doomsday, but it is very good against Reanimator, TES, and a lot of these other combo decks. So. It's possible that you end up leaning more on Deafening Silence, so that way when the combo deck takes a turn off to cast uh, their answer to Deafening Silence, you get to play your 3-drop. Yeah, um, I, I do think Deafening Silence is very good if you're playing a bunch of Skyclave Apparitions. Like, it gives you that thing that helps you to buy time, and sometimes the Skyclave Apparition can hit something from the combo decks. So against something like Ant or TES, um, more Ant, 
it's often correct to play out your artifact mana early so that it doesn't get taxed by Athalia. And if you can make it to turn three, all of a sudden you actually get to like remove a Lion's Eye Diamond that's sitting on the field or something. Like there's there's a lot of play here. But I should probably shut up about this card unless you two have something to say about it. Think I'm good. Yeah, we could easily fill our, our normal episode with uh, how to build D&D around this card. But I think we've made our point where uh, the ripple effect of just you, you don't just get to slide a sweet new card into your existing archetype. There were so many things that Phil just talked about for to try to fit this Skycleave apparition into D&T. And he barely scratched the surface. Like he, There's so much more to say. Yeah, I skipped like 10 bullet points because I realized I'd been talking forever. <laughs> yep. And, and, I, and I didn't chime in the way I normally would because I could have chimed in on most of those bullet points, but I was like, oh my god, this is going to be a four-hour episode. So... I cut it off, but but the the point stands of there's so much to think about when you're adding a new card to an existing archetype. So my part or portion of this podcast is to talk about a previous example, very similar to Skycloud Apparition or Skyclave Apparition. I'm sorry, and to show like how you can do that. And I'll try to keep mine a little bit shorter than Phil's, although I do have a decent number of bullet points here. So my uh, previous case study example is Bushclaw Talisman. Uh, at the time that Wishclaw was spoiled, the Epic Storm was trying to include Mox Opal. So, like, an Artifact Tutor seems like a no-brainer. But the consensus at the time from a lot of the very good Storm players, including myself, was that, like, this card was more of a flex spot. Like, the deck had one open slot at the time. Was Wishclaw good enough? Like, did the deck really need a ninth tutor? Because a lot of the Ant players felt like TS already had too many tutors at the time. Uh, Alex McKinley from TheEpicStorm.com was testing it as a one-of and liked it, but thought that it fell a little bit short. And along the time, we thought, like, well, why is Wishclaw Talisman worse than Infernal Tutor? It's three mana. It's a permanent, which means it gets blown up. Uh, you can't imprint it. Like, even though Wishclaw Talisman is black, it's an artifact. And Chromox says non-artifact card, which is kind of a downer, but that's how it's worded. And like Phil mentioned, Phyrexian Revoker, Pithy Needle. Uh, it gives the deck targets that it no longer had. Like, before, those cards were just blanks against the Epic Storm. So these are reasons why you wouldn't play it. And the thing is, like, some cards are meant to be built around and not played as a complement, like your Skyclave Apparition. And Wishclaw Talisman is one of these cards. So instead of looking at Wishclaw Talisman as a complement to Infernal Tutor or Burning Wish, maybe it's the primary. Like, maybe you don't play it as a one-of. Like, maybe it's your four-of. And that ended up being the answer, and sadly, Infernal Tutor left the deck. So, like, why would you build around Wishclaw Talisman over Infernal Tutor? Uh, your deck can be played in a number of different ways and that change compared to the past. So, with playing Wishclaw over Infernal Tutor, you get to, like, the Epic Storm has always lived on very thin margins. So, like, when you're running Chromox and Rite of Flame, they make one or two mana, and it's like it comes at a cost. When with Ad Nauseam Tendrils, Cabal Ritual makes three mana. Lion's Eye Diamond makes three mana. Dark Ritual is like your worst accelerant at making two. So there's a pretty big discrepancy there. And Wishclaw Talisman allows you to play it on turn one. And then on turn two, you only need six mana to cast Ad Nauseam, unlike the past where you needed seven with Infernal Tutor. So that's a pretty big boon. Uh, you get to play more powerful cards like Echo of Aeons because Wishclaw Talisman can get either half of the LED Echo combo. Uh, Veil of Summer is an instant. Wishclaw Talisman says that you can activate at instant speed. 
which means that you can counter your opponent's spells out of nowhere. I know that Brian may not like that, but Wishclaw Talisman does not say activate as a sorcery. So that's kind of a cool thing about it. It's really hard to use Wishclaw Talisman properly from the other side of the battlefield. I have seen a lot of people like not quite understand how Wishclaw Talisman actually works and not realize some of the lines that are available to them. Yeah, it's certainly a card that it has a learning curve. Like once I started playing the Wishclaw builds, I realized that they were significantly harder than the Infernal Tutor builds. Because sometimes you have to plan in advance. You're like, hey, I'm going to activate my claw on my main phase, give it to my opponent, knowing they're going to go get this. But then on the third one, I'm going to go get Abrupt Decay, destroy whatever they got, and then use the card that I initially got to murder them. Yeah, that's an experience I recently had too. Like, normally I don't get to activate my opponent's Wishclaw Talisman. Like, they activate it and then I win or lose. Like, either they concede that turn or I die. And. I actually had one sitting in play with a blue deck. I think it was in one of my recent YouTube videos playing some shark deck. And I was like, oh, sweet. We could just wish claw for deafening silence or whatever. And like you just said, and then it went back to them and I was like, oh, shit, they could just get the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it still won me the game because they had to spend a turn wishing and casting abrupt decay. And then like that turn was the time I need. But like still, uh, that card is... The, the cost of giving your opponent a tutor also is pretty low. Yeah. But speaking of uh, cost, that's actually the next thing I wanted to talk about. It's like a lot of the times when we talk about these cards and why we're playing them over another card, it's all the pros and never the negatives. Well, with Wishclaw Talisman, and I'm sure Phil will learn this with Skyclave Apparition, is like sometimes you can't play a card that like used to be a staple in your deck. For the Epic Storm, Empty the Warns actually had to leave. Because like if you're going to give your opponent a tutor, you don't want to empty for 14 go, hey, here's a free demonic tutor. Why don't you go get that Dead of Winter <laughs> in your deck? Like, that's not a good interaction that you want to have, or even a one of Plague Engineer. So like Empty the Warrens, as much as I love the card, it ended up leaving. And currently we're playing a main deck Tendrils of Agony, but it's not because Empty the Warrens left. Like there's a period where we just didn't play a main deck Wincon. Uh, but the Lyris era taught me that Wishclaw Talisman plus a main deck storm spell is very good because you can allow your opponent to build up storm for you, activate your artifact, and then, you know, cast your storm spell. So that was all pretty nice. And in the end, I mentioned how we were trying to add in Mox Opal. Well, Wishclaw Talisman ended up being artifacts 20 to 22, somewhere in that range at the time. So it's actually more than what Vintage PO plays. Like they play 16. Sometimes they'll even skimp and play 15. That's not a whole lot. So, sorry, I'm like trying to go through this quickly. Uh, our initial take on Wishclaw was that it wasn't as good as Infernal Tutor. It wasn't completely wrong. Like, if you look at Ant, they still play Infernal Tutor over Wishclaw Talisman. That's because the Epic Storm centered itself around Wishclaw Talisman. It made it the core of the deck. It is its identity at this point. And Ant has yet to do that. So, like, that's why you still see Infernal Tutor paired with Pass and Flames in that deck. Like, sometimes a card might be right for one deck, but wrong for another. Like, Skyclave Apparition might not be right for Esper File, for example. I don't know if that's true or not, but they're cousin decks. You know what I'm trying to say here. You can do a really cute thing there that involves, like, targeting your own Gilded Drake. So, there's shenanigans to be had. It's pretty cool. Uh, but my biggest takeaway from t discussing Wishclaw Talisman again, and I know that I've talked about it previously on the podcast before, is that like sometimes you need to reevaluate cards that were pre previously untouchable. Like, for example, in Phil's case, like Phyrexian Revoker has been untouchable for years. 
Well, Infernal Tutor has been the identity of Storm Combo for the last 15 years or whatever. So sometimes you need to look at those cards that were once, you know, like, oh, no, we don't talk about that. Uh, like that card is definitely in the deck. Like sometimes you need to look at them and be like, is this actually what we want to be doing anymore? Like, is this the best thing? So that's why I wanted to talk about Wish Cloud Talisman again. And yeah. the last part of my section is I want to ask you guys a question. Uh, this was came up in a, uh, I was helping someone play the Epic Storm and this team came up and it directly relates to what we just discussed. So this is your uh, Mulligan to six. You have a Lion's Eye Diamond, a Mox Opal, Lotus Petal, Basic Swamp, Veil of Summer, Brainstorm, Ponder. What do you put on the bottom? Oh, that's a good I'm one. I'm putting Swamp on the bottom. I think I'm putting Swamp on the bottom. My answer is actually Brainstorm. And I know that it's crazy. And we were against a blue deck, by the way. Uh, and I know, like, Brainstorm's one of those cards, like, you know, you don't, why would you put Brainstorm on the bottom? It's so good. Well, like, Lion's Eye Diamond, Mox Opal, and Lotus Petal are your three artifacts from Metalcraft. Swamp is your land drop. And you're facing a blue deck, so like actually hitting your land drops is pretty important because like if you keep brainstorm ponder and you don't hit a land, you're pretty far behind the rest of the game. And if you draw like a wishclaw talisman or a defense grid, you can't cast it. And realistically, the only thing this hand needs is a tutor. So I just want that ponder to find exactly one card rather than one card plus land. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense to me. So like sometimes you need to reevaluate and take a step back and go like. I know Brainstorm is this super powerful card in Legacy, but in this case, it's the worst card in the hand. I mean, Brainstorm is very frequently the worst card in your entire deck if you don't have a fetch land. That it's just like, oh god, I know my fate, I know that I'm dead, and like Brainstorm is just the harbinger of it when you can't shuffle. All right, well, amen. That was my word vomit. I know I went through it pretty quickly, but Brian uh, has a card he'd like to talk about. All right, yeah, uh, I'm also going to talk about a historical case study, which is, if you've met me, Monastery Mentor, which is a card that you know I love to shove in decks, and it's a card that uh, changed the way control decks win the game in Legacy, white-based control decks. Uh, Vintage blue decks, too. Like, it's restricted in Vintage. Like, this card is real, real good, obviously. And... Up until its printing, Miracles was winning with Entreat the Angels and Jace. Like, that was the plan. There were, there were some Snapcaster beats involved, but really just attacking over a couple turns for your opponent's life total was not a viable plan. You either, like, got them dead in one or two turns with a ma- Mountain of Angels, or you uh, sealed their fate with Jace. And Mentor being added to the equation, it, it took a little while, but it, it created a schism in Miracles building where... Uh, Entreat the Angels, it, it it does, and it basically ends the game, uh, especially back when they had top, like you could just sculpt, answer one for one, one for one, one for one, float that Entreat on top of your deck, and then surprise in the end step, make 16 power and kill your opponent. And that was how the Miracles play pattern worked a lot of the time. Mentor is obviously a totally different card, because you don't get to surprise your opponent in the end step with Mentor, and they're usually not instantly dead when you do. But it did create a way that you could just jam, or a way you could create value on the battlefield. It, it created a new access for the deck to fight on, and the deck didn't really want both because the end game with Entreat is totally different than the end game with Mentor, and you can't really support both. So uh, I, I'm not going to go into the the depths of the history of Miracles building uh, the way that. Uh, 
my co-host did. I'm going to keep this section a little shorter, but just what you have to do to support Entreat is totally different than what you have to do to support Mentor, even though the cards around them remain largely the same, which is a, a big difference from the past two sections. Like uh, when when Wishclaw Talisman was added to Epic Storm, then uh, some of the support cast changed. Like they got to add Mox Opal. Like that that was an ingredient in a total change. The Baracles deck still is like Brainstorm, Ponder, Force of Will, Swords to Plowshares, uh, 20 or so lands. The shell doesn't change, just the Wincon does, but you have to use all the cards differently. So I, I thought that was a super cool way to illustrate this point. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a very different way than I was thinking about this topic, but um, let's say your deck like does or doesn't have a card like Peacekeeper or Moat or Ensnaring Bridge, right? That that drastically changes how you can play a matchup, and that's what's going on here with Entreat versus Mentor. It drastically changes uh, your level of aggression and how you are trying to win, even if you're just like having the same number of win conditions, and it is just a clear one-for-one trade. Uh, yeah, like, normally you have to play two or three mentors to get where you want to be with the card. Uh, you could play one or two entreats and reasonably still win the game. So it, it's, but it is just, I this was my win con, now it's this, and the entire supporting cast remains the same. Uh, this, at the end of the Sensei's top period, this was less interesting because uh, having two tops with Mentor was just nutso busto. You just flip your top, draw a top, flip your top, draw a top, and you basically make X monks, and your monks get plus X plus X, where X is the number of lands you control every turn. So it, it moved to a point where there, it was less interesting. But once top got banned, and everyone had to refigure out how Miracles works at all, and to this day, like years later, uh, like Anurag and some of the other uh, Miracles people they still like Entreat. They they like other win cons, and I've just been purely on the mentor train all along, and uh, I don't think there's a right answer. I think it's just how you want to play your deck and what you want to be ready for. And I think that the match, the a number of matchups change drastically based on what you've chosen as your win con, regardless of the other 57 cards being the same. Like Death and Taxes, uh, that matchup when they're trying to beat Entreat versus when they're trying to beat Mentor, the dance is completely different. Uh, combo. Uh, combo, they know how long they have to set up. Like They can just count your lands and decide how long they have if Entreat flips off the top. But Mentor, you can... Mentor demands action. Like If you jam a turn three Mentor against a combo deck and your hand is just like force, force, blue card, blue card, they have to go. Like They don't get to sculpt. The sculpting point is done. It's go time. It, it plays like kind of a show and tell in that spot. Or if your hand is just like three swords to plowshares mentor and you have nothing against combo, you keep that card in your hand because you don't want to force them to go when you're not ready. You want to hold that bluff some more. So uh, the fair matchups are very different. The combo matchups are very different. And the deck is mostly the same all around it. I know that a previous Eternal Glory host, Wilson Hunter, is on your side of this argument where Monastery Mentor is by far the best uh, control win condition. And I think part of that is that it enforces your opponent to play the game differently. Like, 
if you're running Mentor, they have to now respect a creature out of your sideboard. They can't just slide out four swords to flashers. They might have to leave in a couple. And like you said, a turn three Mentor is very scary from the combo side, but also like it gets you ahead in a lot of matchups that might be poor. Like if you're facing lands or like Eldrazi, playing a turn three Mentor gives you a realistic win condition that like can just close out the game quickly when they're still trying to set up so like if they're going to try to play this long game against you and you just say hey i'm going to play a different game than what you're expecting you might be able to cheese a very quick win and sometimes that's what you need and and if you're a slower control player because i know some of you aren't very fast monastery mentor is a card you can side in and win the game in three minutes you don't have to play this long 35 minute game yeah, like that. That's a big part too. Like managing your win conditions. Uh, I I had a match against uh, Kellen Pastori on Death and Taxes where I was sculpting this end game where I couldn't lose, but I had forgotten that he plowed. Like I did go for like a turn three mentor with force backup because sometimes you can cheese DNT with that, and uh, in fact you frequently cheese DNT with that. But uh, he had double plow, and my my mentor got exiled very early. And then we were on like turn 20, long later. I, I had like uh, under 10 cards left in my deck. And I was like, okay, two of these are mentors. I can't possibly lose. And then I remembered the other one was gone. And I had to suddenly like Supreme Verdict the board, which I was ahead on because I knew I couldn't beat his creatures unless I stuck mentor on an empty board. I had just been planning this, this, this coup, this late game coup all along based on false information. But because I had Mentor, I was able to, like, I needed to Supreme Verdict the board I was ahead on, and then find Mentor off a of Brainstorm that turn. Like, I had, like, eight or ten cards left in the deck. It had to be in the top three. And all those things happened. But I, I don't know that... I, I think Entreat might have been better in that spot. But I, I don't know. Like, it, it, it's convoluted. There's, there's no way to actually communicate this clearly in an auditory medium but managing what your win cons are matters a lot like entreat can just come off the top and the game ends like in a late game situation you have nine cards left in your deck that entreat's going to put like 40 power into play uh mentor you need to get in play you need to have spells to make monks and you need to get ahead of what they're doing on the ground so there's a little push and pull there as well and uh like Bryant was saying from the that uh, mentor forces your opponent to play a certain type of game. Uh, there's a lot of TCGs out there, CCGs, card games, basically, whatever the correct term is, that countering spells is not really a thing that happens. Um, like if you look at like Hearthstone, uh, there, there's a couple, there's a mechanic called Secret, but only a couple classes have access to it, and they're not very good. But the idea of like back and forth and playing on your opponent's turn is pretty unique to magic in a lot of ways. So the way control works in a game like Hearthstone is you control the board, you control the pace of play, and you force what your opponent is able to do. Uh, that's like if you think about a deck like Jund. Like if your hand is like uh, Thoughtseize, Tarmogoyf, you know, the Jund curve, you could Thoughtseize into Tarmogoyf, or you could wait until like turn four thoughtsies and go like Tarmogoyf Bob and, and like how you pace that is going to decide what your opponent does and and that's going to depend on what matchup you're playing against uh, so 
there's there's ways to control a game other than on the stack and monastery mentor does a lot of heavy lifting in that way where entreat the angels does not i think another really cool thing about mentor is like how much the jam turn three mentor fucks with the opponent's strategy so like let's say that you have the answer to the mentor but you're also a deck that wants to play your own three drops you don't get to do both in the same turn on your turn three right so, like, let's say you have an Oko and a Lightning Bolt or something like that, you know, and you very specifically wanted to Lightning Bolt the Mentor uh, to play around something. Like, you you don't get to do that, or you don't get to cast your Swords to Plowshares and your Mirror and Crusader in the same turn or, or something like that. Like, the existence of Mentor also often takes your opponents off of their best on-curve plays. Yep, and, and that's a, a next-level... Skill that the best players know about, like they know what the opponent's deck is trying to do as well as what their own deck's trying to do. So, uh, I, thinking back to recent standard format, like there were a lot of there was Glimmer of Genius and then Hieroglyphic Illumination, which were both four mana instant speed draw twos, and the the aggro and mid range decks would want to take some sort of action that forced a counter spell when their opponent had four mana up. So even if their thing got countered, which it likely would do, they couldn't use turn four to refuel like they wanted to. And then they had to play off mana after that. Like they would have to refuel on turn five and leave a mana unspent. So there's there's aspects to control uh, that other than blue cards. And Monastery Mentor, like Phil said, really punches you right in the gut. <laughs> what? And and it's not it's not even interesting. It's It's not like... I could play Mirren Crusader, or I could Swords to Plowshare. It's like I better Swords to Plowshare, or I'm dead. And and that's that's just exactly what I want out of a control win con. So our last section is looking forward at Magmatic Channeler. So Magmatic Channeler, because this is an audio podcast or audio medium, it's a one in a red for a one three human wizard. As long as there are four or more instants and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, Magmatic Channeler gets plus three plus one. And then tap, discard a card, exile the top two cards from your library, then choose one of them. You may play that card this turn. Note that you can activate this as an instant, so you can activate it on your opponent's turn and cast instants. Um, and I think it's like pretty easy to see this as like a red Tarmogoyf because like, Blue-red decks tend to play a lot of instants or sorceries. It becomes a 4-4 four, four for 2 mana, which is kind of nice. And usually these sort of cards slot into Blue-Red Delver or Rug Delver pretty easily. And this one even does like a decent Dreadhorde Arcanist impression, hypothetically in a post-banning world. Just throwing that out there. Uh, but as Phil... I'll, I'll let Phil say his piece here. Yeah, so... As of right now, it feels really tough to slot this into something like Blue-Red Delver because there's so much competition for the slots. Um, something like a Sprite Dragon is absolutely nuts, but you don't really see it. There's even like very few young Pyromancers around, and fewer things like Brazen Borrowers and True Name Nemesis than we've seen in the past. So right now, it might be hard for this to find a home in Delver, even though, you know, this is a quote-unquote good card. An effective 4-4 four, four for 2 mana that also has other upside is, like, on, on par for legacy play. So instead of trying to slot this into a deck like Blue Red Delver or Rug Delver, 
I actually think that this should have a deck built around it, similar to a Wishclaw Talisman sort of card. And it seems like this card is literally perfect for Arclight Phoenix, because you get to discard your Phoenix, and then the Magmatic Channeler gives you a card to help trigger the Arclight Phoenix back into play. And these Phoenix decks in the past have had trouble with their plan B. So like a surgical extraction, your Phoenix often just meant that you were done. Uh, and that's not really where you want to be. So if you don't have a strong plan B, your plan A is often a little bit worse because it's like the show and tell dilemma where if you don't have a good backup, people are just going to focus on just stopping that one thing from happening. But if they're all insane, what do you do? So the Arclight Phoenix decks in the past have run things like Bedlam Reveler. But if your opponent has a Rest in Peace or a Leyline, you can never cast Bedlam Reveler. You can still cast a Magmatic Channeler and activate it and possibly find your answer for whatever card you need. Or you can just attack with a 1-3. Like maybe you need to deal the last damage on a Teferi or a Narset or something. So that's often a possibility that can happen. Uh, Thing in the Ice isn't that great of a card. Like I know sometimes he's playing Modern, but not really. Uh, it's just like not a card you want to be playing. It also bounces all your Phoenix. So Magmatic Chandler seems like a card that could be played in like a possible blue-red style Phoenix deck. Like I know a lot of them right now are like Grixis with Dark Ritual, but maybe you're not like a blue-red tempo deck. Um, it's within the possibility of things. And like Faithless Looting, that can easily trigger your Magmatic Chandler while fitting into your theme. A lot of the times that these like Phoenix decks have a problem is that like the next best card after looting isn't very good. Like you can play like Tormenting Voice or something or like Careful Study, but like do you really want to be playing those cards? Or would you rather just have a 4-4 beater that can sometimes do the role that you need? So that's my thought on Channeler. I think you need to be discarding for value in order for this card to really shine. Like, I'm not super excited about a 4-4 for 2 red. Like, that's that's fine. It's good sometimes. But I think if you're actually turning this into a true source of card advantage, rather than a source of card selection, that's where this starts to look good. So when you're doing something with arc-like Phoenix, or you're doing something crazy like discarding Punishing Fires and then bringing them back with Grove of the Burn Willows or something like that, and you're actually getting good value out of discarding, in addition to this just being something that you can turn sideways, that's when I think this card starts to look good, rather than just decisively like, yeah, that's 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 playable. Yeah, and it's worth noting that like this isn't your standard red card. Like It's not an aggressive, quick early drop, and it's not like a big late-game haymaker either. It's somewhere in that middle space, and it plays well with the blue-red Delver theme. So it doesn't immediately like strike me as a red card, but it is, so. And for that reason, you probably don't just jam four of these into a deck, right? Like, this is something that you kind of want to draw in the mid to late game, turn some lands into non-land spells, or, you know, do do a little bit of endgame filtering, then it's actually the 4-4. You know, if you just play this on turn two, there's one instant or sorcery in the graveyard, maybe two if you countered something and uh, the card doesn't look overly impressive at that stage of the game. Brian, any final thoughts on Magmatic Channeler? No, I'm totally in agreement that this is more of a build-around than it is a slot. Um, 
like the the phoenix shell the punishing fire was the thing that made me most excited <laughs> this looks like a strifo pile card uh that like a mid-range or control deck uh, th this is not a delver card I, I just don't think it is even if dreadhorde arcanist were banned i i don't think this is the replacement they're looking for uh but yeah in something mid-range or even like four color loam like discard your loam flip a sweet land dredge your loam back i don't know like the that's the kind of thing that gets me excited about a card like this and not any of the alternatives. Yeah, this could be a reason to play like Loam with Punishing Fire again. Maybe this isn't a Dark Confidant replacement, but maybe you don't have to play Black anymore if you don't want to. The Return of Jund Lands from Ancient Times. Though that's a smallpox deck, so Channel is probably not what you want either. There's there's a lot of whispers about cards that might be legacy playable in this set. Um, I know some of the four color loan pilots have been talking about one of the five mana planeswalkers. There's some like green black one that can let you bring back cards from the graveyard and does something else. Your lands become three threes or something. And I know there's some red card. I think it was kind of I don't remember what it did. I know Jarvis was talking about testing something in lands that I looked at it and I went like really. So was it the X spell? No, no, it wasn't the X like landfall spell. All right, yeah, yeah. Uh, without devolving into a, a full like preview episode, I've seen some some pretty cool stuff in this set. Um, and and the it'll be interesting to see where the uh, the land or the spells that are lands on the back land in eternal formats, because. Uh, in generally it comes into play tapped land that only taps for one color is not what you want anyway but that resource system was proven to be broken in a lot of other card games that died because their resource system was broken where uh instead of playing lands you put cards from your hand into play face down as essentially a land so every card is also a resource uh so that was the mana system for a lot of now dead tcgs like uh wow is one of them uh versus system is one of them and magic is kind of emulating that with this new mechanic though uh it's it's a powerful thing though i i'm not convinced it's going to break into legacy i would like to pitch my land to force of will ha 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 ah uh, yeah belcher could go down to zero lands probably <laughs> i don't know i'm sure there's not a ritual that you could play as a land that would be bananas Anything else, gentlemen? I think I'm good. No, I, I think I'm tapped out for today. Samesies. All right, folks. Um, by the time you're listening to this spoiler season, we'll probably be in full swing. There will be a lot of cool, interesting things out there. I know I've got some work to do with a certain core spirit in my free time. I hope you all find some fun things to build around, and I hope some of what we said today is useful while you're doing that. Have a great rest of the day.